0: dollhouse my name is blue stocking and i will be your librarian and your host for the next hour or so if you are a returning listener you have my eternal thanks for continuing to tune in if this is your first time in the dollhouse please come in have a seat and get settled but be aware that this show is by necessity overflowing with spoilers so if that's going to be an issue you might want to turn back now read the book that we're going to talk about today and then come back i will still be here i promise now, it has been a hot minute, guys. What's up? <laughs> Did you miss me? Um, yeah, it's, the last time I posted was, what, April 29th, and it was my sad little plea for money, which I'll talk about on the back half of the show. Um, yeah, crazy shit, man. Um, finished my third semester of library school, 4.0, might I add did very well. Um, moved, (laughs) picked up and moved to a new location that is much happier for everyone involved. Um, Mr. Stocking and I landed in a really great place. We are very happy right now. Um, and of course, you know, there's always a, a backside to that. Um, there's always a balance, and again, we'll talk about that as well on the back half of the show. Um, some of the other stuff that's going on. But, um, hey, I'm back. few things I wanted to cover in the intro. Uh, a lot of shit's happened in the last three months in the world, um, and I can't go into all of it. But a couple of things. One thing I did want to mention, um, if you're looking for... The dollhouse on the interwebs. There is no more Facebook. There's no more dollhouse Facebook, and there's actually no more blue stockings alter ego Elizabeth Hedrick Facebook either. I did get rid of both of them. Uh, they're deleted completely, they're gone. Uh, Facebook was just bad for my psyche. The dollhouse uh, Facebook never got, never really got any um, action anyway. It was kind of a pointless waste of time um, and Facebook is just bad for my psyche um, it was no good for me so I deleted it but I am very active always on Twitter and on Instagram uh, as well there is a dollhouse Instagram and then there is my Instagram I think I'm Clockwork Heart on Instagram and the dollhouse is I think SPDH pod um, so you can find me there on those um, I'm always looking to talk to you guys now one of the things I did want to cover, uh, before we get started, um, there's a, and this was, a, I don't know, this was a couple weeks ago now that this happened, but uh, there's still a raging debate over this, the Little House debacle that's going on. Um, for those of you that are lifelong readers, and if you're like me, uh, one of the first series of books that you ever read for me, that was Little House on the Prairie series, the whole series. I still have it, actually. I can see it from where I'm sitting right now. I had the little box set, um, all of them. I have the Laura Ingalls Wilder biographies. Um, it wasn't until I started getting older and rereading the stuff, obviously, that I could see finally, um, yeah, it's, it's problematic. It was written at a time when it was going to be problematic. And that's not an excuse because there were plenty of other things that were written at the same time that were not problematic um, but Laura Ingalls Wilder was raised at a time and by a certain people who did not have anything nice to say about Native Americans whose land that they were tromping all over um, so what happened was Laura Ingalls Wilder's name is on a major children's literature award and there's recently a division of the ALA voted to take her name off of the award and now it's just going to be called the Children's Literacy Children's Literature Legacy Award. Um, she was the first to receive the award in 1954, and the intention of the award is to honor books published in the U.S. that have had an impact on children's literature. And hers did. Um, they were widely read. Like I said, there was the first seri- some of the first chapter books I think that I ever read were these. And the way that she had written them, uh, much like J.K. Rowling would later write Harry Potter, um, where the books were very babyish as Laura was a child, and the, the subject matter and the writing and the style got older. She got older. Um, there were books that I would reread every year, just like Harry Potter. Um, and we won't go into Harry Potter and its problematic nature of some of those things. But Little House um, had... <laughs> Issues. It had a lot of problems. Um, much like many of our favorites, as we get older and we find out that things that we have fond memories of, of were problematic, <laughs> this is definitely one of them. Um, the article that I was reading is, talks about um, Wilder described one setting in Little House on the Prairie. Uh, there were no people, only Indians lived there. Um, and apparently, I guess that was changed in later editions of the books. But I do remember uh, the only good Indian is a dead Indian thing. That I definitely do remember. Um, and Ma freaking out about the Indians in the house. And at the time that, you know, I read them, it didn't occur to me that this was bad, this was wrong. This was, the, they were, Laura's family was in a place that they shouldn't have been. Uh, and that does come up in the books too, but it's seen as you know righteous anger that they're getting kicked off of land that they should have a right to because nobody settled it, and as we know now, or as we should know now, um, plowing and planting doesn't necessarily mean ownership of land. The Native Americans were here first; <laughs> they just were, whether they quote unquote did anything with the land is a moot point. They were here first. And so tromping all over it and this isn't an, we all know this already. Um, so this is what's happening and this is what's been driving the library world crazy um, with people going so hyperbolic as to claim that Laura Ingalls Wilder is being stripped from everything. She's not. <laughs> She's not. Um, they just Took her name off of the award because of the anti-Native American and the anti-black sentiments that are in the writing. They are in the writing. Um, The time for her writing has passed. There are... And I still, like I said, I will always have nostalgia for these books. Nostalgia doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it a good thing. Um, She did a lot of work. She did good things. Her, Her books got children reading... But if they're reading the wrong thing, then does it matter? I guess is the way I look at it. Um, and it's not, because th- what one of these groups is saying is that it's not beneficial to the body of literature to sweep away her names so or the perspectives in her books never existed. Those perspectives are teaching moments. But we don't need to <laughs> read a book that celebrates The Only Good Indian is a Dead Indian to understand that the perspective is wrong. Um, is how I see it, I guess. Um, it's not, like I said, it's not sweeping her away. She's still there. You can still find her books. They're not being gathered up and burned. It's just that it's 2018, and we need to understand that some of these viewpoints are not good, and they are wrong. We can read the books as quaint and entertaining and um, move on from there and not take them as anything to learn a lesson from, except that we need to be better. We need to do better. Um, then there are plenty of other books for kids. Even books from that... And I don't have lists of them. I'll, I have the link in the notes for the article. Um, and there are... Um, one of the things that you can go and look to is the American Indians and in Children's Literature um, group. And there you will find the children's books that aren't problematic and that aren't troublesome and that weren't written 150 years ago. And, you know... Teaching lessons that we don't need our children to learn. They're they're hearing enough already with what's good. And I think that's the other thing is that with the things that our president is teaching us and saying to us and expounding about, the last thing we need to do is hand our children more literature. <laughs> That tells us that, you know, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Um, and to talk about people who don't belong here, we don't need that. That is the last thing we need our kids to be reading. Um, especially the part, and I, I distinctly remember this part too, the part in Little House on the Prairie, the Little House on the Prairie book, when Laura starts throwing a fit because she wants an Indian baby, and she, she sees a little Indian baby in a papoose, and the baby has bright black eyes, and... She wants that baby, and she wants her pa to go get her that baby, um, and she cries and throws a pick because she wants that baby like it's a doll, like it's something for her to take away, um, and it's not, but that also, I guess, segues into, um, something else that we need to talk about, talking about nativist theories and xenophobia and children being passed around like bargaining chips and, uh. And that would be the children that have been separated from their families in mass numbers. Um, And yeah, we're still talking about this because there's still horrible, horrible, bad things that are happening. Um, And actually, it's gotten to the point that Snopes actually did a fact check on this because of the fact that these detention centers where these kids are being kept, these quote-unquote tender age facilities, um, which sounds like a It's terrible. It's horrible. And apparently, I guess the story going around was that the Trump administration paid $458 million to somebody called Southwest Key for these facilities. Um, Snopes did a fact check on it. It is true. It's all out there. It's all available in government paperwork. There's a thing called Southwest Key. It's run by a uh, chief executive called Juan Sanchez. He currently is... <laughs> making a salary of 1.5 million. Uh Southwest Key Keep in Mind is a nonprofit and yeah, the government has paid them 458 million to keep these kids in facilities in uh, I think it's Texas and Arizona and California. 27 immigrant children's shelters. Um it's insane. It's, uh, the one here in Texas that people have been, uh, really losing their shit about, Casa Padre. It's a converted Walmart in Brownsville, reportedly holding 1,500 children. Um, and there was a guy, uh, let's see, Antar Davidson. Uh, He was a whistleblower. He was working at, at Estrella del Norte in Tucson, and he worked there for about six months this year, um, and apparently it was it was terrible. It was chaotic. Uh, these kids are losing their shit, and of course they're going to be. Um, but siblings have been separated from from each other, um, and j- ages and genders have been separated. There's a no touching policy, no hugging policy. It's children are not weapons. The fact that our administration is weaponizing children is insanity. Um, and yes there is also the argument that could be made that about um, deportations under Obama I get that that's not what we're talking about right now we're talking about children that are being ripped from their parents and tossed into these facilities where they can't even be touched um childhood trauma man that shit that shit <laughs> they are creating the. they are creating so many future problems right here Right here. This is where it starts. You want to know where the end happens? Why the end happens? It's Because of shit like this. When you take children and you traumatize them, they're going to get out eventually. They're going to grow up. They're going to be angry. And then you have problems. This is where that bullshit starts. Because of crap like this. Because our administration wants to terrify people so bad and keep them from coming here so bad that they're willing to take children away from their parents so that families that have been coming here won't come here because they won't want their children taken away from them so instead they'll stay in the Central and South American countries with the gang MS-13 that was created here and that we exported (laughs) and so these people will no longer be running from the problem that we created because of another problem that we created do you see where this is going? Do you see the army of children that is being created? Do you see the child militia that is being created here? Um, this is going to start climbing over the gates and strike back. This right here, what's happening with these kids, this is a post-apocalyptic YA novel in the making. It's coming. Because it's shit like this. They're creating their own problems, and then they're going to lament when something really terrible happens. And they're going to say, see, we told you. We warned you. Ugh. I missed you guys. I am so glad to be back with you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, as per the usual, um, I did include the article, the link for the Snopes article on this. Um, so you guys can go take a look at that on your own. But, I mean, it's true. It's factual. It's what's happened. Um, these kids are... Something bad is coming around the bend, or something even worse, I guess I should say. Um, but that I believe that's enough for now to get us going. Um, like I said, so much has happened in the last few months that the Me Too movement, or as uh, the Daily Zeit, one of my favorite new podcasts, or favorite podcasts that I started to listen to, the Daily Zeitgeist, keeps calling the Me Too every time something happens, <laughs> Mengazi. Mengazi just keeps rolling along, and they keep showing up, um, so I can't even... We won't go into all that today, um, part of the reason that I wanted to cover specifically the Lori Ingalls Wilder thing and, uh, the children at the border is because of the book that we're talking about today, Gaslight Dogs, um, has to do with children being taken from families, um, and sent to white people, so we will get into that in just a minute. Gonna run some ads from friends, you know the drill. And then we will uh, get started. We're going to do some terms and some summaries and uh, discuss why this is an important book in the steampunk
1: canon. So bear with me. We will be right back. Potentious perils in the 23rd century. The year is 2217 and the fifth great steampunk revival chugs forever on. This month, we're all wearing VR goggles that perfectly recreate the actual vista in front of us with the one alteration that now everybody is tipping a top hat in polite greeting. Join me as I recount my many adventures. Gasp at the scientific know-how of my aunt, Dr. Erudition Synonym. (laughs) Respectfully at my terribly attractive fiancé, Happiness George. And shake your tiny fists at our evil nemesis, Professor Von Pun and his beastly gentleman. Featuring... Monkey Butlers <laughs> This thrilling moment Does anyone have any ketamine? I think I'm addicted to that now This Attention This suffering from lesbians is being drawn to its doom This hilarious character cameo from semi-retired national landmark Big Ben <laughs> Han Zimmer I am Han Zimmer And so much more Oola Oola I'm loving it Oola Oola I'm loving it indeed Ask your iTunes or off-brand podcast provider to supply you with your free dose of portentous perils in the 23rd century today. If you enjoy it, tell your friends. If you don't enjoy it, well, tough. It's not all about you, Carol.
0: This week's episode of the Steampunk Dollhouse is also sponsored by the Judgment Night Radio Hour. Are you a fan of audio drama? Do you enjoy classic pulp fiction in the style of Dashiell Hammett? macabre southern gothic stories of the likes of Cormac McCarthy, or stirring drama reminiscent of August Wilson, then tune in to the Judgment Night Radio Hour. The Judgment Night Radio Hour is an audio drama and fiction anthology podcast featuring lurid, rousing tales of existential angst, metaphysical mayhem, spiritual crisis, sin, repentance, redemption, justice, and judgment. Presented in the style of an old AM gospel radio broadcast, the series is hosted and narrated by the ominous fire of brimstone preacher Reverend Reginald Cephas Weaver III, who gives soul-stirring sermons in the form of southern gothic, neo-noir dramas, thrillers, and mysteries. Imagine if Flannery O'Connor directed The Twilight Zone with an all-black cast. This sinister series of short stories and radio plays can be found on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To find out more, follow their Twitter at Radio. Visit their website on www.judgmentnightradio.com or like its Facebook page, at Judgment Night Radio. Turn or burn, literary listeners, but don't turn that dial. All right. Let's get started. Today's book is The Gaslight Dogs by Karen the I believe I'm saying that right. Um, And this is analogous to um the inuit i believe um she did give a uh, a dedication at the beginning of the book and so i started doing a little research we're talking like way up there in the cold 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 hinterlands of the north um so it's not this is one of those that it's not earth as we know it but again it's analogous to the earth that we know it and the culture's That will come across in the book um, are similar to Inuit and uh, generic European for the most part. So, as we like to do, I am going to go through um, some terminology uh, and some different um, ideas with you guys so we can um, get a better idea of what's happening in the novel. And then in part two, um, I will have some information, some um, clips from, or not clips, but some stuff that I pulled out from a few different interviews uh, about why she wrote this and how and um, what it connects to in the real world. So we are going to start with Inuit, and again, as per the usual, if I am mispronouncing something, I apologize. Uh, I try to Google, Google as much as I can. Uh, But again, I'm from Texas, and as I've said before, we are, we barely speak English, so I'm doing the best I can. Um, So the Inuit, a group of culturally similar indigenous peoples inhabiting the Arctic regions of Greenland, Canada, and Alaska. Inuit is a plural noun. The singular is Inuk. The Inuit languages are part of the Eskimo Alut family. Inuit sign language is is a critically endangered language language isolate used in Nunavut. In the United States and Canada, the term Eskimo was commonly used by ethnic Europeans to describe the Inuit and Alaska's Yupik and Inupiat peoples. However, Inuit is not accepted as a term for the Yupik, and Eskimo is the only term that applies to Yupik, Inupiat, and Inuit. Since the late 20th century, however, Aboriginal people in Canada and Greenlandic Inuit consider Eskimo to be a pejorative term. Uh, they more frequently identify as Inuit for an autonym. In Canada, uh, sections 25 and 35 of the Constitution Act of 1982 classified the Inuit as a distinctive group of Aboriginal Canadians who are not included under either the First Nations or the Matisse. The Inuit live throughout most of northern Canada in the territory of Nunavut, Nunavik in the nor- northern third of Quebec. <laughs> this is where it's going to get hard for me. Nunatsiavut and Nenitukavut, I think, in Labrador, and in various parts of the Northwest Territories, particularly around the Arctic Ocean. These areas are known in Inuktitut as the Inuit Nenangat. Again, my apologies. In the United States, the Inupiat live primarily on the Alaska North Slope and on little Diomede Island. It doesn't sound right. Diomede. Am I saying that right? The Greenlandic Inuit are descendants of ancient indigenous migrations from Canada as these people migrated to the east through the continent. They are citizens of Denmark, although not of the European Union, which I thought was interesting. Um, the Inuit practice, this is the, the part that's really important um, for the this story that we're gonna hear. Uh, the Inuit practice a form of shamanism based on animist principles. They believe that all things had a form of spirit, including humans and that to some extent these spirits could be influenced by a pantheon of supernatural entities that could be appeased when one required some animal or inanimate thing to act in a certain way. The Anga cook of a community of Inuit was not the leader, but rather a sort of healer and psychotherapist who tended wounds and offered advice, as well as invoking the spirits to assist people in their lives. His or her role was to see, interpret, and exhort the subtle and unseen. They were not trained, they were held to be born with the ability and recognized by the community as they approached adulthood. Now today, uh, many Inuit follow Christianity, but traditional Inuit spirituality continues as part of a living oral tradition and part of contemporary Inuit society. Um, They balance indigenous and Christian theological practices. It's a type of uh, religious syncretism. Um, I would say, similar to Vodou, in the ancient practices mixed with Catholicism In this case it's indigenous practices mixed with Christian theology uh, the, I, would, I would assume it would be the Christian theology um, Probably Protestantism Thinking about who went up that way But I could be wrong um, Now their own cosmology um, Kind of helps with that there is a, an, an Inuk writer, uh, she actually wrote a book on mythology, co-wrote a book on their mythology, Rachel atatuk Kitsualik. and she said, The Inuit cosmos is ruled by no one. There are no divine mother and father figures. There are no wind gods and solar creators. There are no eternal punishments in the hereafter, as there are no punishments for children or adults in the here and now. Um Traditional stories, rituals, and taboos of the Inuit are often precautions against dangers posed by their harsh Arctic environment. Um, Knud Rasmussen, who was a turn-of-the-century, turn-of-the-20th-century anthropologist, uh, had a guide and a friend named Aua, so I'm not sure how to pronounce that exactly. He was a spiritual healer, and he was asked about Inuit religious belief and was told, we don't believe, we fear, which I thought was... It was interesting. It almost strikes me um, when I was dabbling in Catholicism when I was younger, and that's always the feeling that I got about Catholicism. They don't really believe so much as they fear. Um, authors Inga Cliven and Brigitte Sohn just debate possible conclusions of these words because the shaman was under the influence of Christian missionaries, and later he even converted to Christianity. Uh, the study also analyzes beliefs of several groups, concluding that the fear was not diffuse so that it, it may be specific to one group and not all of them. Um, now this next concept is, um, this one definitely has um, correlations to the book we're going to talk about, soul dualism or a dualistic soul. It's a concept, um, it's a range of beliefs that a person has to. ...or more kinds of souls. In many cases, one of the souls is associated with bodily functions... ...and the other can leave the body as a free soul. Sometimes the plethora of soul types can be even more complex... ...and sometimes a shaman's free soul may be able to undertake a spirit journey. Now, um, and you know me, I get this stuff out of Wikipedia... ...so if it's wrong, well, you can at me if you want... ...but to give you guys a basis for information... ...Wikipedia is the easiest source to do that... um, ...and hopefully you will... Scatter out from there and go find better information, Um, but this is what I can give you for now. Now, as far as soul soul dualism, this is a pretty wide-ranging concept across a lot of cultures, but for specifically uh, the Calbo Inuit groups believe that a person has more than one type of soul. One is associated with respiration, and the other can accompany the body as a shadow, Soul concepts of Inuit groups are diverse and not alike. In some cases, it is connected to shamanistic beliefs among the various Inuit groups. Uh, Caribou Inuit groups believed in several types of souls. So there is that as well. And again, we'll see that in the book coming up. Um, Now, this last one that I'm going to go into, (laughs) super important, cultural appropriation. Um, Loosely, concept dealing with the adoption of elements of minority culture by members of the dominant culture... It is distinguished from equal cultural exchange due to the presence of a colonial element and imbalance of power. Particularly in the 21st century, cultural appropriation is often portrayed as harmful in contemporary cultures, and it is claimed to be a violation of the collective intellectual property rights of the originating minority cultures, notably indigenous cultures and those living under colonial rule. It's often unavoidable when many cultures come together, and it can include um, other cultures' Fashions, their symbols, their language, their songs, and most importantly for this episode, uh, their cultural and religious tradition, their religious and spiritual beliefs and traditions. Um, kind of like Madonna running around with the, the red Kabbalah bracelet years and years ago and everybody else that was doing that. Yeah, kind of like that where you don't really understand. It just seems like a cool concept of this other religion, and so you take it and you glom on and you... You use it and you don't understand what you're doing or what the significance is, kind of like that. Uh, now, according to critics, uh, cult- some critics cultural appropriation differs from acculturation, assimilation, or cultural exchange, in that it is a form of colonialism. Um, so there, when cultures naturally move back and forth, um, and we're not talking about stomping in and crushing everyone and claiming yourself as dominant, we're talking about free flowing. Cultures, um, you know, early the Greeks sailing around, um, Africans sailing around, everyone moving up and down coastlines, um, just migrating, just natural migration that happens when people need to spread out and move. There may not be enough food in one area. You encounter another culture, you come together in a friendly manner, and stuff starts to move across the lines. Uh, fashion ideas move, you know, um, types of weaving move back and forth a particular type of music, you know, that this one culture may not have had drums and this one may not have had flutes and then they move across lines and they share and they spread and it's beautiful and you get something wholly new out of it. That is not cultural appropriation. That is normal. That is what's supposed to happen. Cultural appropriation is a white girl at Coachella wearing a Native American headdress because she thought it looked pretty. Um it's dominant cultures that come in and take and take and take what they want. And they will wear it, but is this is knowing that the cultures that you're taking from, they were generally expected to not do those things anymore and to wear, uh, Native American, for example, to not wear those headdresses, to not wear the moccasins, to not wear the buckskin clothes, whatever it was that they wore, those were taken away from them, they were given white people's clothes, they were given white people's shoes, their hair was cut, and... Now again, white girls run around with Native American headdresses because it's cute. So that's and there's a bigger discussion around appropriation. One of which we've had in this household between me and Mr. Stocking about <laughs> what it is and what it isn't, and it's it's a, it's a there's a bigger discussion there. Um, and the important voices, the the more important voices, are the ones who have had their their shit taken. Um, so that is the cultural appropriation portion of the episode. <laughs> but that will be this, that concept is massively, massively important when we go into the book. So uh, Gaslight Dogs, Karen Lawachi. Um, the, the, the cultures that we really, that we, that we see are, and I, I believe it's pronounced the, the Anu or the Anui. I, I think it's Anui. I'm not sure. I'm a, that's how I've been saying it. Um, there's no uh, audio book version. That I could find, so I think it's Anuwi. They are the indigenous culture, and the Kira, the Syracusean army, or the Syracusean army. Um, those are the colonialists, the the white people. They come in. Uh, they're. What happens is they're they're essentially already there, but they're they're trying to colonize. They're trying to to walk across and you know dominate and take the land. Uh, there are some indigenous peoples that work with them. There are many that don't. The ones that are furthest up, the ones that are in the coldest parts, um, they're still having some trouble. Now, there are missionaries. They worship uh, seven deities. Um, so there is a, an overarching colonial religious system as well. And what we have is a young girl uh, named Shenanerk. I think it's how it's pronounced. S-J-E-N-N-O-N-I-R-K. I believe it's pronounced Shenanerk. She is... They also call her Shen for short. Um, she is an Anui girl who is an Ancago. Uh, she is a direct descendant of the spirit elders of her people. And she is a very strong young woman. And... They are based on, like I said before, they are based on um, the Inuits that live way up in the north. So contact with the the Syracusans begins, as we see in many, many different um, stories, factual and fictional. Colonists come in. Some a lot of. There are times it starts out perfectly reasonable. They trade. They mingle. Um, eventually, it it turns hostile and. Something happens. Um, I'm still not exactly sure what happens. That Shen was accosted in her um, home in the middle of the night, and she ended up killing one of the others, um, one of the Syracusans. And she's arrested. She's taken away to uh, the city where she is taken by a man named General Fall. And here's the thing what makes Shen special? Her people, the Incagos, the, the 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 spirit guides, uh, they can manifest a dog, capital D dog. It's they don't turn into a dog. The dog comes out of them. Um, they're left in somewhat of a, a catatonic state, and the dog emerges fully. It's, the way I pictured it was kind of a smoke billing out of billowing out of their bodies and becoming this fully formed corporeal creature. who was very powerful, very deadly. Will kill you. Barely controlled. Um, but what happens is when Shen kills the man, she um, her dog ends up manifesting and killing a priest, Father Barry, um, who was working with the the indigenous people, she gets taken back, um, and for some reason that we aren't really explained isn't really explained uh, fully, and I'll explain that later. Um, Cap General Fall's son is Captain Jarrett Fall, and General Fall wants Shen to teach Jarrett how to manifest a dog to manifest the little spirit. For some reason, he believes that Jarrett can do this, even though Jarrett is Syracusan. Jarrett is not, as far as we know, uh, indigenous in any way, shape, or form. He is all colonial. He is all Syracusan. Um, Now, there's another... um, He is not um, Anwi-like Shenanerke. Uh, a man, a young man named Keeley, who is uh, also part of this. He is a Wishishian. He is a scout, and he kind of goes back and forth. And I think it's, it's, it's indicated that he is actually General Fall's um, son, also, by an indigenous woman. And he didn't get what he wanted from Keeley, um, but for some reason, so Shen... Is taken into General Fall's house. Um, nominally, she's treated okay. She's given clothes. She's given food. It's not like home. It's so it's 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 hard. It's shocking. She doesn't know what to do. Um, and she actually says in there, you know, everything is the, the form was wrong and it's patterned and cut. There was no fur or soft skins. It was she she picked and she pinched. She couldn't stand it. It was you know it was making her crazy. The food wasn't right, um, but it's. It's interesting the way it's done um, shen's Shen's ideas her viewpoints, her perspectives her voice her voice is an interesting voice and so she wants to go home but she's she she's you know kept there until she could teach Jarrett how to do this Jarrett doesn't want to do this either he has no interest in this he he doesn't like his father doesn't get along with his father um, but he's got his own issues and so and there's also something happened to Jarrett as well, and it's never really explained, but he was assaulted at his outpost. Um, and it seems like it may have been a sexual assault, not really sure. Um, it's not ever really gone into deeply. So when he's back with his father, and his father wants him to learn how to do this, because his father thinks that he can take this dog spirit and use it to fight the indigenous people. Um, and so, it's shocking when it actually turns out that Jarrett does have a dog spirit within him. Um, but Jarrett is not happy about this. Um, sometimes he's okay with it, sometimes he's not. And he has trouble controlling it because he has no idea what he's doing. He didn't grow up with this, with this knowledge of this thing, and so it's going to cause problems. Um, so, the Syracusans come, come from a place called Saraland. And they are here in this place that is not their home, uh, trying to make it their home. And we've got Keeley, who is General Fall's eh, servant, but I think also might be his son. Um, and then sister, a woman named Sister Oza will insert herself into the situation. So she appears, she appears to be um, a priestess for the seven deities, but she's definitely got her own agenda. Um, that is is very unclear, and again, there's there's reasons for all of this. Um, so it's it's an interesting story. It was a really interesting story. Um, like I said, it's it's <laughs> cultural appropriation goes horribly, horribly wrong in ways that nobody ever expected. Um, so that is your terms for the week. I hope you remember them. There will be a quiz, and that is your summary. Uh, of course, the usual half-ass that I do. Um, that didn't change. I know I was gone for three months, but I didn't get any better at that. So we are going to take a break. Here's some promos from my friends that I have missed so much. I'm going to hear a snappy little song, and then we'll be, we will be back, and we will go a little deeper into cultural appropriation and... Things like heathen schools and why it's wrong to take people away from their families and send them to live with other people. Um, So, we will go into that in just a little bit. Uh, Enjoy the music, and I will talk to you in about ten minutes or so.
2: Put it down and you feel like shaky all over. Both your hands are covered. Wow. Immediately wow. peg him as a cogman. So, oh, we've known each other for years. One of the knives is missing from a garter hilt because it is being pressed to your throat. <laughs> Damn. Hands, we had a. Oh my. God. Oh. Oh. So took is... money from him, huh? okay. We talked about this earlier. Immediately <laughs> attacked by the forces of the American Confederation. <laughs> yeah. Are you constantly checking for traps? <laughs> the Steve Rollers Adventure Podcast is available at rickstories.com or on iTunes. You can also get it at Stitcher and Google Play. We've just discovered a very rare bit of audio from former Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Let's have a listen. I, Winston Churchill, wholeheartedly believe that the Clockwork Cabaret is the finest example of steampunk radio programming. Never before have I heard anything quite so marvelous, and I doubt I shall ever hear anything like it again. Alpernia, continue on your journey, broadcasting your marvelous music, and sail on to glory.
1: If you would like to find out more about this program, please check out clockworkcabaret.com or clockworkcabaret.podbean.com or follow us on Twitter at clockworkcabaret. That's C-L-O-C-K-W-R-K-Cabaret.
2: A Victorian goth, a weird west enthusiast, a sky pirate, or just steam curious. If so, then join the Texas Steampunk Connection as we review and enjoy steampunk books, movies, comics, games, films, and events all over the great state of Texas. Come along with your hosts, Flavio, Erica, and Thax, as we enjoy steampunk adventures and share our discoveries with you. Something, 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 hats, corsets, boots, etiquette, Pistachios, a teapot, bollocks. Find us on Facebook and fanboytv.com or wherever you find podcasts. <laughs> Goggles, gear, something, something. And you always mind find your gauges. gauges. The Story Punks Podcast, a show where we talk about all the punks. So steampunk, diesel punk cyberpunk and all the other punks interviewing tons of artists, authors, musicians, all kinds of creators in this space. Either they've created the genres or they've taken these punk genres to the next level. So the main theme that unites all these punks, what is it? It's the word punk. That's just this beautiful underlying theme of rebellion. And it's this theme of playing with technology, and it's playing with what are the rules of a certain society, and I love the idea of punking time and space and technology, and we're playing with the possible. I'm Cindy Grigg. Visit storypunks.world to learn more and to get involved.
0: All right, kids. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that. That was The Walls Ate My Sister's Dog by Box. And you can find that on freemusicarchive.org. As always, link is in the show notes. Now, um, I did want to uh, cover a couple things real quick on the this book. Um, one thing that's real important, if... You read this book, and I do recommend that you read the book. However, when you're reading it, um, the end is kind of, kind of feels like it drops. It, there's a lot of information that has not been given. Um, and according to this article I read in Under the Radar, as I said when Lawachi released The Gaslight Dogs in April 2010, she had already published a trilogy of highly acclaimed science fiction novels, um, which are War Child, Burn Dive, and Cage Bird. even though there was no indication of this on the novel's cover or as far as as I can tell anywhere else in the book, The Gaslight Dogs was actually supposed to be the opening volume in a trilogy. Um, But the author did confirm eventually that the new series was pitched as a trilogy, but the publisher only contracted for one book. So she pitched as a trilogy. They only bought one, and they never bought the other two. So when you read it, you can see that there's information that is not there like I said, like Jarrett Fall and why he can do what he can do um, when theoretically he should not be able to do it. So I, I assume that there's something uh, in the family history a few back, you know, a few generations back, that the Falls aren't pure Syracusan. Um, but we don't know. It was never finished. And again, this was back in 2010. It's been eight years, so I don't know that she's going to come out with the other two anytime soon. Um, now, as far as the book itself – Karen uh, did an interview with beyond victoriana um, if you haven't read beyond victoriana you need to go find it it's a really good site uh, multicultural steampunk they also have a facebook page um, go look for it but they did an interview with her uh, some time ago and again link is in the show notes about the book and um, so i cut out a couple of pieces from the interview when asked if asked about the steampunk nature of the book. What she said was, I don't categorize to myself when I form an idea. And to be honest, I'm not intimately familiar with the steampunk genre or any of its affiliates, though I am getting into it more. I approached this book as a kind of story I hadn't quite seen, but with the understanding that perhaps it's because I hadn't looked deep enough. That was fine. I still wanted to tell it. I thought I could bring a small, unique perspective with the exploration of an Arctic culture based on the one I have been able to interact with. Because she did live near, I think she said, I think she said none of it. I can't remember exactly. Um, But she did live near um, a group of Inuit for a time, and that's where this came about. She said, I wanted to include other milieus that I find fun and interesting, 19th century city, and 19th century frontier, to throw them all together and see what can come from the conflict. It wasn't until after talking to my editor I realized that maybe I was right, that this would be a little different and would hopefully intrigue readers as something new. The whole dog ancestry spirituality is, is her, was her own imagination. She says that uh, she, had, she was very specific in saying, or that she, she does want to um, be very specific in saying that she is not Inuit. Um, so she knows that she has to be respectful of the culture while acknowledging that she is taking creative license with the fantasy novel. And she hopes that people who read the book and are totally ignorant of Inuit culture might be intrigued enough to go research on their own and find out what it's really like and not be so lazy that they'd assume this fantasy novel is an accurate depiction of the real world culture. Um, She's a very plain-spoken lady. Um, I follow her on Twitter. and She's sharp. I like her. Uh, Interesting. Very interesting person. So that is where that came from. Uh, Like I said, the dog... Spirituality was her idea, but it did strike me as being very, very much like the the dual-souled, the, dual the dualistic nature. Um, now, as far as the book itself, um, it's got the usual suspects that we deal with on this show of colonialism. There is a, a hint of gender inequality, not super much, but um, a little bit. Most importantly, there's the fear of the unknown thing, um, this dog thing that's inside of her, and there is most importantly of all, the cultural appropriation of it all. Because the issue, the biggest issue that we find as far as that is the fact that... Shin is raised with the idea of the dog. Um, It is intrinsic to her culture. It's something that she has always known. It's always been a part of her life. It's always been a part of her. So she essentially... She's a teenage girl, I, fourteen, fifteen, maybe. Then um, the dog has just always been there. It's essentially grown with her, so when she begins to train Jarrett how to do this, and the reason that they figure out he can do it when they finally get her back to the Syracusan city, and you know she's being held because of Father Barry's death. Um, the problem is that. The wolf that killed, or the dog that killed Father Barry, it won't go back in. So the whole way there, the, the dog is there, manifested, guarding her, essentially, and she's catatonic. And so when she's sitting on the boat, and they can't get close to her because of the damn dog, and General Fall sends Jarrett down there to fix it and make the dog go back in, and there's some question of, well, why... Does he send Jarrett? Why does he know that Jarrett is going to be able to do this? And he can, and he helps her. He's able to make the dog go back in. And she doesn't understand it either. Neither one of them understand why that this is working for him, but it does. But the problem is that, to a certain extent, she has little enough control over her own dog, and she's been raised with it. Jarrett has very little control over his dog. Um... He can bring it out, <laughs> but it's dangerous, and he can't control it. Um, and it's... Go- well, I, was gonna, I would say it's going to be a problem, but the trilogy is is no... It never happened, so we're, we're kind of left hanging as to, to what exactly Jarrett's dog was going to do um, and how many issues were going to arise because of it, because he doesn't understand, and that's, that's where we... We get into meddling with things that you don't understand, cultures that you don't understand. When you haven't been raised with it, you can't truly comprehend the vastiness of certain belief systems and to just take it and put it on and wear, it, you know, years ago, I was the, the women running around with the bindi jewelries and the, the dots and the, the Hindu markings, and it was ridiculous just because something looks pretty (laughs) there may be greater and deeper meaning behind it that you are not understanding and I'm no better than anybody else I mean I have I for those of you that don't know me at close and personal I have a Chinese character tattooed on the back of my neck I got it uh, in 1996 when everybody was doing it actually I think I have talked about this before Um, we were all doing it back then it was really ridiculous um Mine actually mean well, <laughs> as far as I know, it means to adorn oneself. Um, I thought it was pretty. And like I said, everybody was getting characters at the time. It was ridiculous. So I had the character on the back of my neck. I wore the Chinese print uh, shirts and the platform shoes and the chopsticks in my hair. And it was ridiculous. And it was crazy. And wildly offensive in ways that I did not understand. Um, I do now <laughs> and I can look back at pictures and just think, what the fuck? But there are certain elements of cultures that are not white people cultures that are we, we aren't gonna be able to understand it. We didn't grow up with it. We weren't raised with it. It's not something that we know. And as far as this whole white pride, white culture, we can just cover that real quick while we're doing this. There is no white culture. If you don't understand that, um, let me break it down. There is no white culture. There's Irish culture, there's German culture, there's English culture, there is uh, Spanish culture, you know. Um, every country, every racial group, every. Um, social group, there's a culture. But there is no overarching white people culture. Now, there can be black culture because many of them didn't know what specific country they came from. Africa is really broad and not a country. um, And it's not a designation. So, black culture can encompass many, many things because that is what they've built because they don't have this specific. Well, I guess now things are a little different now that we can take things like 23andMe and the Ancestry.com DNA, the Ancestry DNA. Things are changing now to where we can get much more specific. And now all the white people in Texas who like to insist that they have Native American blood are finding out that they actually don't. Um, So that's a game changer. Um, and I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll learn a little bit more about cultural appropriation if we learn a little bit more about our actual cultures. Um, if we know where we are actually from, not just where we think we were from. Um, and as a prime example, I growing up, I thought my... Um, I don't really know much about my mom's family. Nobody really does. Um, there's some hints about great-grandfathers and... and how fully white they may have been. But if you've seen me, you know that that's not true. It's probably not true. Um, but my dad's side, I we always thought we were Scottish. Always thought we were Scottish. Yeah, we're not. We're German. We're very German. We're German to the point that we came to this country from the Rhine faults around the time of the Revolutionary War. And actually, I have a, an ancestor who fought in the Revolutionary War. Um, he was a lieutenant uh, and he was actually buried not far from where i lived in pennsylvania i didn't know that at the time um so you don't you just don't know now i also know that my family took part in the trail of tears um hundred some odd years later so we don't always find out things that we want to know but there are things that we need to know um so, I don't know, maybe cultural appropriation will start to make more sense to people when people know more about their cultures, but it is an issue. It is an overriding issue. Um, you can't just take someone's religious or spiritual beliefs and paraphernalia and just use it the way that you want to use it because you think it's neat. It doesn't work that way. And obviously, it's not going to have consequences like you know a stolen dog spirit coming out and killing everyone but you need to understand what you're doing and where it came from that's all i'm saying i told you this was going to be more rambly than usual um now the other thing that i wanted to address outside of the the cultural appropriation well actually not outside of it i guess it goes along with it um the transplanted, now what they, what she says in this, and I, this is one of the quotes from the book transplanted children taken from their tribes and reared in Syracusan schools. Not with Syracusan children, though. The idea had been to tame them. Instead, they had become merely trained and like wild beasts, they'd found ways to disobey. Um, this is, that could have been taken directly from um, a book that I read a few years ago. Uh, I read it for one of my classes, Dr. Travis. Shout out to Dr. Travis. Um, he made us read some really horrific books, and we learned a lot. But one of the things that he had us read is by an author named John, I think, Demos, and the book was called The Heathen School. And essentially, it's what exactly what it sounds like. Heathen schools were not, and they, they weren't just Native American students. Um, they were mostly boys, Is the, the schools that he was talking about specifically, but there are others that we'll go into in a minute. Um, But in the Heathen School book, there are boys that were brought, it was specific schools uh, in the New England area, not just Native American, they were brought from Canada, they were brought from Hawaii, uh, all the Polynesian Islands, they were brought from as far away as um, Malaysia, Uh, the Philippines, they were brought from all over the world. Um, Well, actually, appropriate candidates with little difficulty might, with little difficulty, be obtained from China, from the different nations in India, from Africa the islands of the sea, from Nootka Sound, and the various tribes on the western coast of North America, from South America, and from among the Jews in various parts of the world. Uh, and Demos tells us that the basic goal would be the same in every case, to create a class of native laborers ready to serve as instruments of civilizing and Christianizing their countrymen. Um, now, the issue, obviously there's many issues here, um, specific illnesses that would lay waste to these young men that were brought to the schools uh, consumption, cold, dysentery um, in one insta- instance a dangerous disorder prevalent among people destitute of moral restraint and Demos has gonorrhea perhaps in <laughs> parentheses with the question mark um, so yeah it sounds like they may have caught something else when they came um, and at this particular school seven youths died at the school six of them were Pacific Islanders so we brought, you know, they were brought here um, to be tamed and Christianized. And, uh, man, they just, we laid, what, <laughs> just laying waste to people everywhere with white people diseases. It's just, it's crazy. Um, now, as many, with as many Christian folk as there were that believed in these schools, um, there were also people who felt that there was no way that they would ever... And these were progressive, quote-unquote, progressive people for their time. They didn't approve of the, the, the heathen schools uh, because they thought that there was no point. And um, in many cases, women, especially in the 19th century, for women to have any sort of power... The church was, oddly enough, a very good place for them to exert some power um, as far as missionary groups and their mission work, their charity work. They could take charge, you know. Um, They had a voice, and this was a place that they were very, very, uh, very loud, very strong. A lot of them were very involved with these. But the more progressive, and I use, again, air quotes on that, men... Who didn't support the heathen schools, felt that these schools were um, that women would, what he said uh, they were cast in an especially compromising compromised role as witless dupes or enablers or in a sense co-conspirators. So the women's couldn't be trusted with the uh, the native um, students. And again, what we have here is what we see all the time: protect. The white women, because we can't protect ourselves, God knows. Um, I swear to God. And there actually is an instant, instance uh, mentioned. The, the, the book actually covers several cases um, of inappropriate relations, but this one that he mentions two years previous, there had been a problem, um, apparently unmentioned at the time, of improper intimacy between the hired girl and one or two of the quote-unquote, colored boys, which gave us a great deal of trouble. The authorities had responded quickly and decisively by sending the girl away, and that seemed to take care of it. Um, so, yeah, it's... It <laughs> we have this dichotomy, and it comes up a lot. Um, and actually, I was, I was interested in the fact that, this, that we did not see this in The Gaslight Dogs. Um, there was no romance that I clued into in The Gaslight Dogs between Jarrett and Shen, um, And again, this could be because it was something that was going to come up later with the characters uh, in later books, but there was nothing that I saw in these. There was no sex, there, really. there was no romance. I mean, there was, you know, indications that there were children gotten on the wrong side of the sheets, but there was no sex to speak of that I that I recall. Um, and I did read this some months ago. I've been sitting on this for a while. Um... But what this brings to mind um, is this idea that was so prevalent that a white man marrying a Native American woman, not a black woman, that was completely unacceptable, you could sleep with her and have children with her, you couldn't marry her, but a white man taking on a Native American woman and even marrying her, that was um, more acceptable because he could have a civilizing effect on her. Um, and they were seen, I think, to a certain extent, they would have been seen as more docile, um, but which begs the question of how is a person supposed to act when they've been subjugated and beaten and sold into? But we'll move on from that. Um, the point being here that it was okay to a certain extent, especially on the fringes, on the frontier, closer to the frontier, outside of the, the big cities, for a white man to take on a Native American woman as his wife and have children with her and create white babies. Um, but a white woman marrying anyone but a white man was horrifying and terrible and could not be allowed to happen. Um, and that's was a big part of this Heathen School book is uh, some situations that happen with um, some relatively highborn Native American men who married white women and just the, the horror and the carnage and the death that ensued because people thought it was wrong. Um, and again, I don't know if she was going to go into a romance uh, in this. I'm, I'm kind of glad that it didn't go there. You know me, I, I, I dig a romance when it's appropriate, and but there are times that I think it just gets in the way. But this this idea that the white women need to be protected, but all other women are fair game. Uh, <laughs> it rises up again and again. And when it comes to... Now, the heathen school, the, the Demos and the heathen school, that's just one type, because there were plenty others um, where girls did go. And these these men and women, Native American you know, boys and girls, were taken and sent to these schools, and they're own clothes were taken away and, you know, hard-soled boots were put on their feet and calico dresses were put on the girls and petticoats and bloomers and their hair in most cases was cut and their names were taken, their names were taken away. And especially with these girls, they were taken and trained up to be good, quiet, submissive Christian girls marrying them would have been okay. And that's what was interesting about this, as uh, about the demos and the comparison of bringing Shen to the main city. Like I said, that's, again, why I wondered if that's where it was going to go, because she was taken out of her home, and would her and Jarrett eventually marry, um, or would he run away back to her place? Because that's what you usually see is the Native American women brought out of their tribes and their cultures and brought to their husbands, um home whereas the white women that want to marry um that's yeah that was bad i'm not even exactly sure where i'm going with this but this idea and it comes it comes right back around to what we've seen at the borders with the children again being taken away from their families children that are not white being removed forcibly removed and my point here, and like I said, we you know this happened to Shen. She was taken away from her family, and not everybody has a dog that will protect them. Um, people keep saying that the one refrain that you've been hearing over and over again. Um, you've been hearing it a lot since Trump got elected, but especially with this, this thing with the kids, I keep hearing so many people saying, "This isn't America." This isn't America. This isn't my America. Uh, Guess what, guys? This is your America. (laughs) This is not the first time that this has happened. I'd like to think that it won't happen again, but this isn't the first time this has happened. Um, African children from different African nations brought here, separated from their parents, and sold on the auction block. Children born here to slaves, taken from their mothers, and sold on the auction block. Native American children from many different tribes and cultures and racial groups taken from their families and sent to these schools. Again, where... The, and you've, and I, maybe this is another area where you, you, you've got to understand the cultural implications of this. Taking them and cutting off the hair. Cutting off their hair. Taking their names. Taking their clothes. Taking their identities. Forcing Christianity upon them. You take these young girls, especially... You take these young girls and you put them to... You you Christianize them. I'm using a lot of air quotes today. And you, you put them to work. And they become maids. And they become nannies. And maybe in some cases teachers, if they can learn the English and the grammar well enough. And maybe if they're good enough and they're docile enough and they're sweet enough and they display enough Christianity... They might get married to a white man who will civilize them even more and their babies will be white. But for Native American men, the boys that were sent to these schools, because um, not with the, with the heathen schools specifically in New England, the intention was to raise them up into Christianity and send them back. But this wasn't always the way. And so these boys that are taken off of their reservations... And sent to these schools here in wherever it was, if it was Oklahoma or it was Texas or wherever it was. And again, uh, Shorn, you know, names taken from them, raised up to be good Christian men. But the difference here is that white women can't marry anybody. but They can't have sex with anybody but a white man. They can't marry anybody but but a white man. And so what are these Native American men supposed to do? <laughs> they're essentially taken to these schools and they're they're neutered and left there. Is it any wonder that anger arises? And so what's going to happen with these children that were separating at the border from their parents and then separating again from their siblings, separating them up by, you know, by gender, male and female, which has its own horrific implications because depending on the age of these children, transgender children are becoming much more visible, and not just in America, everywhere. And so we've got children who come to the border who may have been born biologically female, but identify as male. What the hell is going to happen there? Because I'm guessing if ICE doesn't give a shit about anything else, they're not going to give a shit about this. So we have even more horrific... Futures for these kids I don't know I don't even I don't know where You know where we go I mean because so many of these kids now They don't even know where their parents are They've been shipped to facilities Across the country Um, And not everybody speaks English Not everybody speaks good English So getting them connected back to their families again Especially if the children are 2 and 3 years old They have no idea who they are It's not like they have their names pinned to them So this this concept That we see in In Gaslight Dogs And actually we'll also see it next week um, That's right <laughs> We're going to have an episode next week too Because I'm crazy um, Next week with Dread Nation um, Taking the children and raising them somewhere else Because that's the implication that I got from the story Is that Shen is not going back home anytime soon. She is going to stay with the Falls. She is going to stay in this uh, Syracuse in town. Um, whether they can turn her into a white, you know, a, a semblance of a white lady, I don't know. But that was where I I, I wondered if that's where she's going with it, this, this taking the children away. And she, she goes into a couple of different areas. I mean, she says that... Um, that there are when, when we're talking when she's talking about the town and about um, the way the nation tribes have been treated uh, from the book, it said it's not unheard of for prisoners to be kept even barely for either slave sale among some of the nation tribes or for other nefarious and sometimes recreational purposes. Sometimes they were simply adopted and reared as tribal property, some warped exchange of life for life. Jarrett had seen the results of all methods in his time, and a cast-iron stomach would find a battle to withstand the sight even once. Some things fueled the soldier in him. So the implication is that the nations warring among each other took slaves, but there's also the implication that the white, the, the white soldiers took slaves as well. Um, and, you know, that way lies nothing good, nowhere good. So it's, it's hard to give... The book itself, I think, is it's very good. Um, it's hard to give a really good... What's the word I'm looking for? I I do, I recommend that it be read. I think it's an important part of the canon. It's it's a good outside additional view um, from the steampunk platform. But it's also, you've got to read it with the viewpoint that it is left to a certain extent open-ended. It is unsatisfying simply because you know that there's more and we never got it. Um, And it did take me some time to read it, only because one of the things that took me some different time to read is that um, the the book has different points of view for Shen and for, for Jarrett, but with a lot of books, even when there's different points of view, the writing is still the same. Um, it's different people, it's different thoughts, different you know the the different different viewpoints, but the, it's still written in the same style. This is not that way. Shen has a very very different thought pattern to Jarrett. Um, and it, cause it's her that we hear first, if I remember correctly. And so it actually was, it took me a little while to get into it. Um, I didn't understand. I thought something, <laughs> I thought something was wrong with me and the way I was reading it. And then I read the other part. So there is a difference. It is a notable difference. But once you notice that and you get into the rhythm of it, it actually adds a very distinct and very good element. And God, I wish she could have written two more <laughs> cause I want to know what happens. Um, I like these characters a lot. I mean, Jarrett is so far shaped up to be... He's complicated. <laughs> he's an asshole. Um, he doesn't like what's happening to him. But, you know, he's got this power. And so what's going to happen? Is he going to use it for good? Is he going to use it for evil? Is he going to defy his father? You know. And Shen, she's strong. She is She's small and she is mighty. Um, but she also needs to learn to control her shit, too. Uh, she's got to tighten her shit as well. So... There was a lot of story that could have been done here. Um, where it started was very good. It was very good. It was very different. Very different. <laughs> um, but I think it falls into, into the, the, the steampunk canon very well. Uh, it was a really good start, and I wish it could have gone further. I don't know. Maybe if enough of us buy it <laughs> in the next few months, maybe there will be some move to, you know. I don't know. Maybe somebody can start a petition to get her to write the other two and self-publish them. I don't know. But they were good. They were really good. Um, it's a viewpoint that we don't see a whole lot from the... the We, we were seeing more and more from the, the side of the coloni- the, the colonized. I was going to say the colonialized. The side of the colonized. Um, but not from necessarily the Native American colonized side or First Nations, um, indigenous peoples colonized side. And especially with the, the Arctic hinterland that it was. Um, it was good. It was really good. I want more. <laughs> I always want more. But I do recommend it. Um, again, it's it's an important part of it. Um, and, you know, hey, go look up uh, Demos, the heathen school as well. Uh, it'll give you a little bit more of a background to some of this stuff that was going on. Not the dog, obviously, but the 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 taking of the indigenous children. Um, give you a bit more background on that. So go read Gaslight Dogs by Karen lawachi Maybe look up some demos. Do some reading of your own about the Inuit people and their culture. It is fucking fascinating. Um, I could not personally spend time among them. Uh, I don't like the cold. But it was... It was really good, and it is, it is a fascinating and very rich culture, uh, very rich history and stories. Um, so take a look. Go learn something, uh, and then come back and let me know what you think. And uh, that is all I've got for you guys today.
2: Coming soon to the Gallery of Curiosities, this was it, the moment he'd waited so long for the moment he'd traveled almost 200 years through history to experience. The Gettysburg Paradox by Joe Vashachek. Do come to model cargo container is the new opium chest. We know the early 21st century is the new late 19th, and we are here to modernificate you against it. So, delay no more. Visit us in the intertools at www.mohammedanandcelestial.com At Mohammedan and Celestial, when we hear the great powers invoke civilization. We chamber around in our C-96 on
0: your behalf. Now, if you recall, in April I posted a very sad and very heartfelt plea for your money. And I did this in order order to help pay for a trip that I have coming up to England in August. Um, In case you didn't listen to that announcement episode, or if this is the first time listening... Or if you just have a really shitty memory, and gods know that I certainly do, here's the deal. I have been invited to present a paper at Asylum Steampunk Festival in Lincoln, England, on August 25th, 2018. Uh, the paper I will be presenting is the one that kicked off this whole podcast idea to begin with. Uh, it's called Airships Over the Horizon, Imperialism, Globalization, and Technology in Michael Moorcock's Warlord of the Air. And the reason that I need help is because this came up kind of at a time when my whole life is in flux. I'm about to enter my final semester of grad school. Uh, I'm working in a different position in the library this summer for much less money. And Mr. Stocking and I just moved to a much better and much safer place, but moves cost money. So we're while we're not quite broke, we had just enough money to get by, but not enough to add a trip to England into the mix. Um, but this is one of those lifetime, you know, once-in-a-lifetime experiences, and so I am appealing to you, Blue Beret in hand, to help me out. Um, some of you already have, and I cannot begin to tell you how amazing that was for me. And um, a few of you have donated anonymously, so I'm not going to name any names, but you guys know who you are. You are all fan-fucking-tastic. Um, I actually got just, just got another one um, late last night or early this morning. I'm not sure who... It was that donated, but thank you. Um, I It means everything to me um, to have these donations. It really does. And if you haven't donated and you feel like you might like to toss up a buck or five my way, it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, the link will be in the show notes. And as for the trip itself, some things have come up. Um, and unfortunately, my beloved Mr. Stocking will not be able to go with me. We're both very saddened by this, um, but we must proceed. And to that end, I have actually secured the help of a friend who lives in London and who is also presenting at the convention. She's actually presenting right after me. If you aren't familiar with Helena Esser, I do highly recommend that you look her up. She is a very fascinating woman and apparently a very kind one. Uh, She's currently a PhD PhD student at Birkbeck in London, and her PhD project is entitled... Writing Back to the Future, Reconfiguring London's Victorian Cityscape in Steampunk Fiction. Yeah, she's doing her her PhD on fucking steampunk cityscapes. It's amazing. Um, The paper that she's presenting at the convention is called Grufties, Goggles, Gramophones, Steampunk in Germany. Uh, So I am looking forward to hearing that and to getting to know her better over the asylum weekend. Um, She's actually going to meet me... um, in London, and we're going to take the train up together, and we are going to share a room over the weekend. So, she has graciously agreed to let me interview her for the show. Now, I know I have previously uh, rejected interviewing anyone on the show. Um, while I have been interviewed a couple times, I have turned down the idea of interviewing anyone myself. Um, it's just not in my nature generally. But we're going to be sharing a hotel room for two nights, so Steampunk's Lumber Party, um, and I'm going to have her answer a few questions for me and explain um, her outlook on steampunk. So that should be interesting and that will be aired um, the week that I get back, probably sometime in the week that I get back. Uh, So look for that, I guess, probably last week of August, first week of September. Um, So that's my news and updates. And as always, I suggest you do go visit the podcast that you heard about during the show. Uh, Go down to the links and take a look at our library boosters. Toss me a little bit of money if you feel so inclined. And or just look me up and say hello. Uh, I am really friendly, I promise. Now, if you have a podcast you'd like to promote with us or a song that you would like me to play uh, during the intermission, you can contact me at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com and just put podcast promo or music promo in the subject line and we'll take it from there. And with that, we are done. We will see you next week for... Eve of Zombie Destruction, or Why Nothing Ruins War Like the Rising of the Dead, with Justina Ireland's Dread Nation.
3: The Steampunk Dollhouse is a Windup Girl Studios production and bears Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. It is written and produced by Elizabeth Hedrick. Production assistance, artwork, and moral support provided by Matt and Josephine Davis. Transmission alerts provided by library field agent Robbie Copperstocking-Hattercock. Our intro music is Baby, I'm Not Your Lady by Singing Singy. Our exit music is Goodnight by the Knickerbocker Quartet. These songs and all other episode music can be found at freemusicarchive.org. All episode sound effects can be found at freesound.org. For complete attribution, see the show notes or visit our website at spdhpod.com. Angry or frustrated over images of crying children who have been locked in tender age shelters by the same assholes who won't let women have control over their own bodies because won't someone please think of unborn babies but we don't give a shit about those kids once they popped free and become a burden? Contact us for assistance at stevefungdollhouse at gmail.com or on Twitter at spdhpod. And finally, we thank you for tuning in. I'll keep reading your rights for as long as you keep listening. Blue stocking out. Eight.
2: Four.